Welcome to Medical Moments. This is Dr. Sean Canone, Chief Medical Officer of MPAC Healthcare. And this is our first ever podcast episode. Today's topic is acetylcholine. And while that may not sound like a very flashy topic for episode number one, I can assure you that it is central and foundational to everything we are trying to do as we care for older adults in long-term care, post-acute care settings. And as I thought through what I might want to do for a first episode, acetylcholine popped into my head. And as we'll find out here shortly, nothing pops into our heads without acetylcholine. So maybe this is the perfect place to start. Acetylcholine is one of the most interesting and important substances in the human body. And it is essential to normal human physiology. It also plays a significant role in much of the pathophysiology that we're asked to address and treat. And when it comes to prescribing, there is no other topic that is more relevant and more important to discuss than the effects of our prescribing on the activity of acetylcholine. This is especially true in older adults because many of the medications we prescribe can enhance or inhibit the effects of acetylcholine, and these enhancements or inhibitions can sometimes be very helpful, but sometimes can be very harmful to our patients as well. So acetylcholine, you may recall from courses you've taken in the past, is a neurotransmitter. It's a chemical messenger carrying a message from one cell to another. And it is the predominant neurotransmitter of the parasympathetic nervous system. This is the non-fight-or-flight nervous system. And neurons, nerve pathways, within the parasympathetic nervous system are called cholinergic because they use acetylcholine as their primary chemical messenger. I mentioned earlier that these cholinergic pathways and acetylcholine itself is present and utilized in almost every organ system of the body. So as we look to understand physiology and pathophysiology better, we really have to have a grasp on what is happening with acetylcholine. The first thing we need to do is kind of get an image in our minds of of what is happening here, a schematic. And many of you have seen this kind of diagram in the past, and you'll remember that uh, there'll be two cells usually a nerve cell on one side and maybe another nerve cell on the other or a muscle cell on the other. And in between these two cells that are in proximity to one another is a space or a gap called the synapse. The cell in the first uh, part of the sequence before the synapse is called the presynaptic neuron, the presynaptic cell. The cell that comes second, whether it's a muscle or a neuron, is the postsynaptic cell. It comes after the synapse. And so with acetylcholine and these cholinergic systems of the body, the presynaptic neuron is stimulated and releases acetylcholine into the synapse. The acetylcholine carries its message, its chemical message, through the synapse and hopefully will engage a receptor on the postsynaptic cell, thereby delivering its message. Along the way, Some of that acetylcholine will be captured and broken down by enzymes in the synapse called cholinesterase enzymes. Many of you have heard of those before, and we'll talk about those in episodes to come. These enzymes break down acetylcholine into its two constituent components, which are choline and acetate. 
That's important to, to understand because that's part of the normal recycling of acetylcholine. Those two components are taken back up into the presynaptic neuron and repackaged into new acetylcholine for a future message. So when you think about the proper functioning of acetylcholine, it actually is a very intricate and complex process or series of events. First, you have to have a presynaptic neuron that can make enough acetylcholine. Secondly, the release of that acetylcholine has to be in sufficient quantities. So if there's not enough being released, then there's a less likelihood that that acetylcholine is going to get to a receptor on a postsynaptic cell and carry the message through. Third, the acetylcholine has to make it through the synapse before being captured by cholinesterase enzymes and degraded or broken down into its core components. Fourthly, you have to have the binding of acetylcholine to a specific receptor on the postsynaptic cell. And lastly, you then have to have that normal recycling process occurring where acetylcholine that's been utilized is then broken down into its core components, taken back up into the presynaptic neuron, and repackaged for a future signal. Now there are two basic types of acetylcholine receptors that appear on a postsynaptic cell. The two broad categories are nicotinic and muscarinic receptors. Today we're not going to talk much about nicotinic receptors. Maybe you leave that for a future topic, but just know that nicotinic receptors are present in the central nervous system. And as the name kind of identifies, nicotine can attach to these receptors and cause changes in the central nervous system that come with things like smoking. But peripherally, nicotinic receptors have the primary function of helping with skeletal muscle contraction. So acetylcholine that leaves these uh, cholinergic neurons and attaches to a nicotinic receptor on skeletal muscle will cause skeletal muscle contraction. Today we're going to focus on muscarinic receptors though. That's the second major classification of acetylcholine receptors. Muscarinic receptors, and there are five of them in the body, M1 through M5. So it's easy for us to remember and these Muscarinic receptors are found with different predominance in different organ systems throughout the body. So for instance, the muscarinic 1 receptor is found most commonly in the brain. And when acetylcholine attaches to the muscarinic 1 receptor on a postsynaptic neuron in the brain, it allows for cognition, memory, learning, insight, judgment, executive functioning, all the things that we would measure on something like an MMSE or a BIMS scale. And so that is the normal physiological functioning of acetylcholine at the muscarinic 1 receptor in the brain. The muscarinic 2 receptor is predominant in the heart. And remember, this is the non-fight-or-flight nervous system of the body. So when acetylcholine binds to the muscarinic 2 receptor, it'll cause slowing of the heart rate. The muscarinic 3 receptor is found in several places with predominance, the first being the lungs, where when acetylcholine binds to the M3 receptor, it causes bronchoconstriction. In the salivary glands, when acetylcholine binds to M3, we get mucus secretion. In the, the bowels and bladder, when acetylcholine binds to M3, 
we get smooth muscle contractions. So we'll get urination from the bladder, we'll get contractility of the bowels and bowel movements occurring uh, in the GI tract. And finally, M3 uh, receptors are predominant in the eyes. And these control the size of the iris, contraction of the iris, which controls pupil size and allows for accommodation and clear vision. I mentioned there are two other types of muscarinic receptors, M4 and M5. They are both located in the central nervous system, but still to this day, there's really not a good understanding of what they do. And so those are the five muscarinic receptors. Now, when we prescribe, I mentioned earlier, we can either enhance the effects of acetylcholine or we can negate the effects of acetylcholine. Some of the medications that we use that enhance or augment the effects of acetylcholine uh, are the dementia medications. Those are the ones that are probably most common to us. So drugs like, like Exelon, Razidine, Aricept, those are cholinesterase inhibitors. They block cholinesterase enzyme in the synapse so that acetylcholine that has been released has a better chance of getting to the muscarinic 1 receptor on the postsynaptic neuron and help with cognition. And that's the way those medications work. Again, we'll come back to this in future episodes. On the flip side are anticholinergic effects of drugs. This, this is an effect of a medication where it goes in and doesn't directly interact with acetylcholine itself, but instead will go in and block one or more of the muscarinic receptors. And when that happens, acetylcholine can't have its normal activity. And so we, we start to put the normal physiology of the body out of order when we add anticholinergic drugs into the system. This is really, really important for us because I'm sure most of you had, have heard the term anticholinergic, and we know that typically anticholinergic effects of medications are not desirable in the elderly. As a matter of fact, the original Beers criteria back from the early 1990s, many of the medications on that list of drugs that are potentially inappropriate in the elderly uh, had anticholinergic side effects. That's why they were on the list. The federal and state regulations that govern prescribing in long-term care post-acute care settings speak very clearly about the use of anticholinergic drugs in our population. So we'll come back and talk about that again in a future episode as well. But just know this, there are hundreds of medications that we utilize every day that carry some degree of anticholinergic effect. The most common, the, the ones that we think of most clearly, are the bladder drugs. So this would be like ditropan or detrol. Those drugs are purely anticholinergic, and they're aimed at the muscarinic 3 receptor to try to reduce bladder contractility. And so, again, in future episodes, we'll talk more specifically about the treatment of overactive bladder and, and how to utilize these anticholinergic drugs most safely. But just for today's purposes, know that these medications don't only impact the muscarinic 3 receptor, uh, that they can impact the other four muscarinic receptors as well and create a complex of side effects uh, based on their ability to do so. 
The other important thing to remember about anticholinergic drugs is that their effects can be cumulative. So some medications carry very small amounts of anticholinergic effect, and some carry very very large amounts of anticholinergic effect, but they can stack on top of one another. And so if you've ever heard the term anticholinergic load or anticholinergic burden, that is the stacking effect of, of multiple medications that have some degree of anticholinergic effect. The elderly tend to be very sensitive to anticholinergic effects of medications. And the way that I learned to remember what anticholinergic side effects might look like, especially in older adult populations, is uh, through this, this little phrase, can't spit, can't see, can't poop, can't pee, can't think. So when you think about those things, can't spit, dry mouth, which can affect nutrition and uh, a patient's desire to eat and to digest food properly, can't see, Loss of the ability to accommodate clearly can lead to an increased risk of falls. Can't poop, very obvious there. Slow down GI contractility and you can have issues with constipation or fecal impaction where you see uh, sometimes patients who need to be on multiple laxatives to continue to have uh, some semblance of normal bowel activity. Can't pee. With with anticholinergic drugs, sometimes comes the slowing down of bladder contractility, and often that's desirable with an anticholinergic drug such as ditropan or detrol. But if that contractility is slowed too much and patients don't urinate often enough, they can be at an increased risk for UTI. And finally, can't think. Uh, it's important to recognize that anticholinergic delirium is very common. It's a form of anticholinergic toxicity in the elderly, and it's thought that when you look at the top causes of delirium in the elderly, especially the nursing home population, that uh, depending on the source you read, anticholinergic toxicity is right up at the top of the list. Uh, sometimes it's number one as a cause of delirium, sometimes number two behind infectious causes, but it's a very, very uh, prominent cause of delirium in the elderly. So Remember, the can't spit, can't see, can't poop, can't pee, can't think. So as we close today, just remember that we must be very aware of our prescribing with drugs that impact the cholinergic systems of the body, especially cautious in those over the age of 65, and that is most of the patients that we care for. And this is where we'll pick up next time. We'll talk a little bit more about anticholinergic effects of medications, and in the episodes to come, it'll always be a part of our thinking, no matter what disease state we're looking at or what class of medications we might be exploring. But for today, I hope that's helpful to you, and I hope you have a wonderful day.